Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Reinhold Linders. Reinhold is a reader in international relations with a focus on the Middle East in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He's written extensively on the region, on Syria, on authoritarianism, on governance, uh, on, on corruption, the political economy of some of these things, on proxies. You all know his work, so I'm really excited that, that he's able to join us today. Reinhold, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for asking me. So. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I will apologize now for the listeners and to you again. If I break down in a fit of coughing, it's fresh as flu striking on day three. So I'll just put that out there and apologize for now. So, um, Reinhard, can you tell us a little bit about about how you got interested in the in the Middle East and 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 academia more broadly, please? Um, well, that's a bit of a long story, but to give you uh, to give you a bit of a summary, um, I, it started already at a very early age. Um, I was born in the Netherlands, uh, went to school to, in the Netherlands, and um, in the Netherlands we had uh, a bit of an, uh, to put it to put it kindly, a bit of an obsession with with, with Israel. Right. Uh, so, uh, as a as a young kid, I started reading newspapers and there was a lot on, on, on Israel. So when I started studying, I wanted to do something with politics, journalism, history, wasn't sure yet. But um, uh, in the, my first year at university, I went to, I went to Israel and I uh, did some courses at the uh, uh, Mount Scopus, at Mount Scopus, the Hebrew University. Uh, and that was in a, in, a, in a rather, well, exciting year. Uh, it was in 1989, early 1989, so quite a while ago. Uh, and there was a, an intifada going on uh, next door. And yeah, of course. Uh, very, very quickly, I was like swept up by yeah, the energy and the drama of the intifada and, um, and found myself in the, in the middle of it. And so after that, I went back to the Netherlands and I decided that... Um, I really wanted to focus on the Middle East and um, started studying Arabic uh, and then shifted to political science, so comparative politics, international relations, and um, I'm very much geared towards yeah, studying the Middle East, went to Egypt, studied Arabic there, uh, then went to Lebanon and, uh, well, from one thing came the other. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, what are your memories of, of the Intifada then? Um, well, it was very, very intense. Um, uh, it was also very exciting, but but also for yeah. Well, I was about twenty years old and um, hadn't much international experience, so it, it, it was very shocking as well. Uh, because next to the you know the energy of the Palestinians going into the streets and demonstrating and so on, there was also you know playing violence. Um, coming mainly from Israeli occupying forces, um, clamping down on, on protests and so on. Uh, so it, it's very, it was very emotional. And um, uh, I came back from that period um, not really wanting to, well, but thinking that I was so emotionally involved that it probably was best if I would focus on other parts of the Middle East because... Um, well, I had a lot of opinions and, and much less 
um, urge for analysis at that at that time. Sure, yeah. Um, when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, so I, I started focusing on on Egypt um, at the time, um, and I did my master's dissertations on. Um, the role of the lawyers' uh, syndicate uh, in in um, Egyptian politics, so very kind of micro politics, mm. uh, kind of sociology kind of approach. Um, but uh, yeah, the Intifada was was uh, made a, made an enormous impression on on me. Um, uh, it was also a time that that foreigners were. Uh, like myself, were, were very much welcomed in, in the Palestinian territories uh, because of the revolutionary kind of atmosphere, because of the Palestinians wanting to get their case heard um, uh, uh, internationally. Yeah, that, that sounds really, really quite a fascinating time. And as does your master's thesis, I should say. Um, where, where did you then take your your interest? You say you you spent some time in Lebanon, but was that during the PhD, or was that was that at a different point? No, it was at an earlier stage. Uh, at that time, I, I um, uh, this is in the mid nineteen nineties. I I was lucky to get a grant to study in um, in the UK at um, at SOAS School of Oriental and African Studies at Lon- in London London University. Um, I did my master's there in Middle East studies um, um, with my prime focus on economics of development of the Middle East and North Africa. And um, I, my, my dissertation supervisor was, uh, was Graham Dyer, um, and he, he was an economist, or he is an economist, and he focused on Egypt and the Middle East more broadly, uh, but he had also spent quite a few years in, in Lebanon and um uh, so he was quite enthusiastic that I wanted to focus on Lebanon. Um, and so I spent some time then um, in Lebanon for my dissertation. I interviewed mainly bankers. Uh, I did something on the financial sector, um, the prospects of um, Beirut becoming a kind of regional financial center again, uh, as they as they hoped at the time. Yeah, right. Uh, and I was hooked when I... I was in Lebanon. I was. I found it a very welcoming country. Um, I, I made a lot of friends. Uh, I was. I was fascinated by the, um, well, the, the kind of legacy of war and the and the reconstruction efforts, uh, which were in full swing at the time. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, standing at Martyr Square, which was at the time mid 1990s, completely empty, mm. um, was was yeah quite a quite a memory. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So, so this is all for for PhD work, and and that PhD looked at the the Lebanese efforts to reposition Beirut as this this economic hub. Uh, no, that was my my master's dissertation. Oh, sorry. Um, after I finished that, I I, I uh, embarked on my PhD also at at SOAS. Right. Um, I, I wanted to do something like uh, a political economy of of, of Lebanon. Uh, which there weren't that many around at the time. Uh, everybody was focusing on this, yeah, kind of sectarian politics and the, or consociational democracy and, and 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 so on. And 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 I thought, well, there must be a political economy of that. And and from that broader theme, I I ended up looking at um, at corruption and um, and yeah, state state intervention in the economy. Um, and, and wrote my my uh, PhD uh, thesis on on that topic. Fantastic. Um, 
you've just said something right now that that really struck me that you you were saying that that there was this this obvious focus on sectarianism communalism consociationalism and and unfortunately that's still such a, a prevalent focus but you yeah. then said that that you thought there was something more to that there's there's a political economy side to that what was it that that prompted that thought because i think that's that's such a pertinent one and is largely overlooked well, I, I don't think it's it's overlooked. It's still overlooked. I think many sure. many, yeah, other, yeah, yeah. many other people just um, d- did, um, uh, did research on on the political economy of sectarianism in in Lebanon since. Yeah. Um, but it, I uh, well, it, it it had something to do with my Dutch background. Uh, studying political science in the Netherlands, we were. We, yeah, we were fed, spoon fed with the theories of Arend Jan Leipart, right? Yeah, the, the, the theorist of of consociational democracy, and he 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 operated in a in a context of uh, well, plainly liberal American political science. So um, uh, Robert Dahl and, and 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 people like him, like from the from the nineteen sixties, um, they they were you know. Um, American political science school thought. Um, they looked at pluralism, they looked at elections, uh, they looked at competition and, and parties and so on, and, and they completely overlooked um, economics or political economy. Uh, that, that's the, that they left to, um, you know, to Marxists or to, um, or, or to economists. And I, I had a very ambitious kind of theoretical thought um, at the time, and I thought, well, you know, there must be a political economy of consociationalism. So it, it was a bit of a that kind of background that led me to think that, um, yeah, Lebanon's um, political system um, should also be looked at from a political economy uh, perspective. Um, well, of course, you know, as it goes with with PhD uh, projects more generally, that that was a way too ambitious um, way to go <laughs> about it, uh, and so I, I kind of gradually shifted towards um, studying the role of the state in in the economy in Lebanon, and then I thought that the study of corruption was a, was actually a really good way to kind of problematize or to reflect on public and private boundaries on state versus private sector um, kind of you know, constellations in, in Lebanon. So yeah. it, it wasn't so much a moral or an ethical kind of motivation that brought me to that the study of corruption, but much more conceptually, analytically, uh, thinking that when you study corruption, you know, broadly defined as the use of public office for, for private benefit, then, then you, you are actually indirectly studying uh, and focusing on public-private boundaries, state, society, state, private sector relations. Yeah, of course. Um, Before yeah. we get on to that, can I just ask, how was it trying to do fieldwork at that time into, into the role of the state in the economy? Um, well, I, I, I actually thought that... Uh, it was surprisingly easy um, uh, because lo- lots of people have, have told me later on that they were surprised I could have done any research on so, something so contentious, yeah. controversial like like corruption. But um, I, at the time uh, when I was doing this, uh, which was the late 1990s, um, 
uh, Lebanon had a new president, uh, Emile Lahout. Um, uh, the Prime Minister, Rafiq al-Hariri, uh, was out of office, uh, and um, uh, the Prime Minister at the time was Salim al-Hoz. Uh, and they, in 1999, they embarked on an on a ambitious anti, anti-corruption purge or anti-corruption campaign. So the newspapers in Lebanon were, and, and public debate was full of talk about corruption and about uh, corruption in state institutions, no one, or at least I never had heard of. And I, I thought it was fascinating because it really opened um, yeah, a window towards studying state institutions and what they were actually doing and, and how they were functioning. Um, so to answer your question, it, it was fairly easy to talk with people about all these topics uh, because it was um, it was a real theme, a real issue. Um, the Lebanese had gone through a couple of years of reconstruction, had paid a you know a hefty uh, price for it uh, financially uh, and politically as well. Yeah, of course. And started yeah started questioning the costs of reconstruction and the costs of reconstruction in the context of um, yeah. Uh, generally not not very well functioning Lebanese state institutions. Um, so it was fairly easy to talk about all these things and and you know I also found that um, even when topics are contentious, there's always a way to talk about it in terms of reform or good governance and uh, and, and, and and so on. Um, so uh, yeah, many people also helped me in in, in Lebanon to um, yeah, to find to find data, to find documents, uh, journalists um, uh, channeled or gave me all sorts of um, classified documentation uh, which they they couldn't use for their own purposes. And um, so, yeah, it was a it was a really fascinating time to do to do um, research. Um, it goes without saying, of course, that the anti-corruption purge wasn't only about eradicating corruption. Of course, it was also a way of political manoeuvring, um, of, um, well, countering uh, Rafiq al-Hariri and his prominence in in Lebanese politics, Um, uh, not in the least because of the change of guard in in, um, in Syria. Bashar al-Assad was given the so-called Lebanon uh, file when he was groomed uh, to, to become a the successor of Hafez al-Assad. Um, and he, yeah, he very much leaned on Emil Lahout and his anti-corruption campaign, uh, for, well, obviously for, for yeah, very political purposes. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's fascinating. And I, I wonder, I mean, just diverting slightly from my, my line of inquiry here, but was that your into Syria, so to speak? This this increasing Syrian involvement in the in the political economy of Lebanon. Yes, it was indeed. Um, I, I encountered many cases where there was heavy Syrian uh, involvement in in corruption or alleged corruption cases, um, and um, so I yeah that, that that and 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 the whole what I just touched on the change of guard and Bashar al-Assad's uh, kind of entry into Lebanese politics, which changed Lebanese politics uh, dramatically. Um, yeah, it was it was all a kind of way of um, yeah getting to know Syrian politics a little bit more. But it was was it was at a later stage when I in two thousand and two started working for the International Crisis Group, 
um, that I was asked to you know, to do um, research in and on on Syria. Um, right. Okay. And, and th- that's where the yeah my real um, start of my research focus on Syria began. Sure. So just to to go back to to Lebanon and the political economy side of things, am I right in thinking that? that your fascinating book, Spoils of Truce, is, is based on some of your PhD work? Yes, it is It is entirely based on my PhD thesis. Uh, even though I, when I was working for the International Crisis Group, it, it, um, I didn't have time to develop it into a, a book. Uh, and so a couple of years later, I found that lots of the material was outdated or needed to be followed up. So I... Um, yeah, I did. I did some more research when on on the book uh, when I returned to academia in uh, two thousand five, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. So for for people who've had the misfortune not to read it, and I, I strongly urge you all to read it. It's it's such a wonderful book, um, incredibly detailed, rich. Uh, granted, slightly depressing in places, but. Um, for for people who've not read it right now, what what is the main thrust of the argument? Would you say? Well, I um, what, what 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 I did was basically um, I looked at all sorts of corruption scandals or alleged corruption cases that Lebanese were were, were talking about, and um, I started gathering as much as possible information and data on them, on, on, on what the allegations exactly were about, uh, who was involved, um, in what kind of institutions they, they, they were set. So in the in Middle East Airlines, in the municipalities, in, um, in Solidaire, the company that uh, rebuilt downtown Beirut, um, and, and many other examples. Um, so it became a very complex and convoluted story, and I, I felt I, ne- I needed to have something that, that, that would organize all of that and make, and make some sort of sense of, of, all, these, um, of all these stories. Um, and um, which basically brings me to the the, the, the core argument of the book, uh, which was that well, you know, looking at high level corruption, so involving senior politicians and public servants, um, you know, in, in what kind of institutions do these corruption allegations emerge, um, and do these institutions have something in common? Uh, that may explain why they could have emerged in these in these in, in this context, um, and I figured out that um, uh, all of these institutions wherein corruption was was thriving, um, they were characterized with, by very weak bureaucratic structures, or the the kind of bureaucratic quality of the institutions involved was was, was very weakly developed. So very poor checks and balances, um, conflicts of interests, uh, uh, lack of accountability and so on. Um, Now, that as such is not not that new, uh, because if you open up you know, and, and, um, a random World Bank report on corruption in Lebanon at the time, and even indeed beyond corruption, uh, beyond Lebanon, you will you will find a similar story. But I I, I added another question, which is very kind of you know, from a political science uh, perspective, perspective, and and uh, which uh, raising the question, how did these institutions with these qualities um, come about? What was the politics behind forming them, establishing? 
establishing them, changing them, reforming them, and so on. Mm. Uh, and that brought me to the, well, what I call the Lebanon's political settlement, uh, i.e. what emerged after the Taif uh, Accord uh, in uh, 1989, so the, 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 yeah, the um, uh, power-sharing arrangement and how that was implemented. Uh, and I, f- I found that that political settlement was, was yeah, chiefly responsible for the ways in which these institutions emerged and became vulnerable to high levels of, um, of, cor- of corruption. So how does this map on to, uh, to, to sect-based difference then? I mean, you've talked about it being the sort of mapping onto the post-Tyre uh, political situation and the Tyre agreement itself. But, but where does this, this sectarianism feed into this? Well, I, I I was always suspicious of reducing the entire you know political mechanisms in Lebanon to sectarianism, but I, I don't deny that sectarianism as such plays an important role. Yeah. Um, but I I found that um, the political settlements also involved a lots of lots of ambiguities and ambivalence in terms of uh, rulemaking of, of how the political process was um, was was conducted and and politicians try to get get ways around this so for example the the political settlement was of Taif and post-Taif was very much geared towards, um, well, the, the kind of diktat of, um, of consensus. Uh, and, and decision-making by consensus may be laudable from a democratic point of view, but it's, it's, it's pretty awkward if you have to reach a consensus for appointing a dean of the Arab University or um, uh, get, making funding decisions for, the, for Middle East Airlines and so on. Yeah. So... Political leaders started to look for ways around the, the, the political settlement. So the phenomenon of the Troika, for example, emerged, uh, which is not in the Taif Accord. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, arguably, it's even unconstitutional. Um, whereby the um, Prime Minister and the President of the Republic and the Speaker of the Parliament basically started sitting together and, and struck uh, deals among themselves, um, where they started also d- dividing up the um, well, the cake, uh, if you like. So um, what the Lebanese call uh, muhasasa. So everybody gets a chissa or or a portion mm. of the cake um, and and enjoys a degree of of relative autonomy. So um, Rafiq al Hariri was given the authority to run the uh, Council for um, Development and Reconstruction. Uh, Nabi Berry, the Speaker of Parliament, was uh, was given freeway in the, uh, in terms of uh, running the South so for the, the Council of the South, um, and 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 so on. Um, so it was a way of of well conflict management, if you like, that, that yeah. kind of in an ad hoc informal way emerged um, uh, and and helped Lebanon to have any sort of decision making or governance, but um, made all these institutions involved very vulnerable to to corruption. Yeah, of course. It, it, it's really interesting hearing you reflect on this, and and I really do again urge people to to read your book. I'm going to dip back in after after this conversation. Um, but I think uh, Reinhard, we need to we need to move away from Lebanon because. The, the more recent work that you've been doing is on Syria, uh, on, on the post-uprisings aspect of, of Syria. 
So I mean, you've mm. done so much of this, so many different aspects. Is there a way that, that you can sort of boil down your work in terms of, of what it is that you're trying to reflect on? Um, well, I, I, I think, and, and that's that's what I'm doing now uh, in a book that I'm writing with, uh, with my friend and colleague, Stephen Heidemann. Um, I think we, we ended up uh, looking at, over the last few years, jointly and individually, uh, at, at, at authoritarianism at war. Um, Stephen has, has, has done uh, uh, extensive work on authoritarian governance. Uh, that's also where, in, in, in that context, I, I met him uh, many years ago. Um, when I participated in a, in a book volume, he edited on um, on networks of privilege, which was about economic reform under authoritarian governance uh, throughout the Middle East. And um, well, uh, we, that developed um, uh, just prior to the Syrian uprising. Uh, two years before that, we 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 um, we, we jointly ran a project, a research project on authoritarian governance and authoritarianism comparing Syria and Iran. Um, and we, uh, many, you know, really capable and interesting researchers were involved, uh, which resulted in an edited volume on uh, authoritarianisms in, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and um, so there was a lot of Syria there, um, uh, and we, we, yeah, it was published um, just a couple of months into the uh, Syrian Syrian uprising, um, which, which, yeah, immediately and almost inevitably brought us to to question some of the assumptions and arguments that we had made about authoritarian governance generally and in Syria and on, on authoritarian resilience. Um, so initially, uh, I focused on uh, the, the, the uprising uh, and on uh, collective action and mass mobilization in, in Syria, trying to f- understand why mass mobilization first occurred in, in rather yeah, um, uh, areas such as in Dara, in, in, in rather peripheral uh, areas in 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 Syria, um, and and how protesters uh, were and, and, and activists were able to to get so much political energy into the streets, um, uh, defying regime repression, mm. um, uh, and that also backed a lot of questions about how the uh, Syrian regime uh, responded. Uh, what what kind of tools does an authoritarian regime have in its arsenal? How does it learn from its 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 own experiences in in, in terms of repression and co-optation and, and 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 so on? But also, how did they look abroad? Did they look at how their well their peers, so to speak, and other authoritarian regimes in the regime responded to the um, uh, to the uprisings uh, throughout uh, the region and, and learn from their mistakes and, and, and learn from what, what did seem to work from a regime perspective. So it's, a, it's an interplay between yeah, regime contestation, um, protests, activism and, um, and, and regime responses. And with the uprising in Syria escalating into um, well into an armed conflict, 
um, yeah, more and more we, we started to focus on um, how the regime um, uh, conducted its counterinsurgency uh, campaign um, and uh, the use of, uh, of uh, pro-regime militias, for example. Yeah. Um, so it's um, it's a story of um, of protest, contestation, and 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 authoritarianism uh, at war. It sounds fascinating, and I, I'm somewhat reluctant to ask, but I'm going to because I think people will want to know. When can we expect this book? Uh, when it's done. <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, it, we, we, we build on, on quite a bit of work that we have done over the last few years uh, on authoritarian governance, on uh, the use of um, uh, militias, pro-regime militias, and counterinsurgency. Um, uh, so quite a bit of the book is, has been written already, but uh, we have to put it in a, in a coherent way in, in, in one in one um, monograph. Um, so I, I I suspect it will take another year or one and a half to uh, to to get it to get it uh, to get it published. So our listeners need to be patient, then I guess. Uh, yes, I'm <laughs> afraid so. <laughs> well, I'm sure that we can be, but uh, waiting with bated breath. Reina, we've taken a lot of your time, but if I may, I'd just like to ask you one final question about the the militias that you've been talking about and the external involvement in 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 the Syrian conflict. It's it's become increasingly mm. complex, increasingly um, devastating for the people of Syria. But yeah. how how are you working through this? I mean, some people talk about a proxy war; others talk about something uh, something different in terms of the direct involvement of, of these actors what is it that you're looking at here and how are you understanding things well the my work on on uh, pro-government militias um, started with an, a, a colleague at um, at king's college uh, antonio giustozzi um, and he he uh, extensively worked on similar themes but in in afghanistan and um, uh, it so happened that um, uh, quite a few Afghanis and, and people he knew and, and, and knows um, uh, were recruited um, by Iran uh, to um, to take part in um, or to, to become involved in, in, in counterinsurgency operations in, in Syria. Um, so they st- many of them uh, joined the, the Fatah Miyun uh, militia, which was... Um, well, put together by the Iranians, by the uh, Revolutionary Guard, uh, and and manned by um, uh, Afghan uh, fighters. So, while these Afghans were moving from Afghanistan and from Iran uh, to um, to Syria, uh, Antonio and I also got together and we, we we figured out what we had we had something in common in terms of our our interests. So we we started. Um, uh, a project uh, research doing research on the uh, National Defense Force, which was the arguably the first attempt at um, well uh, organizing, reorganizing the kind of many militias, pro-regime militias that were fighting in 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 Syria and put them under one one umbrella, so to speak. Um, and um, uh, Antonio had a really interesting way to do his research in Afghanistan. Um, he made use of a, of a team of, of local journalists which who were retrained to become researchers and conduct interviews. And uh, some of these people, um, the same people he used in Afghanistan, uh, had moved to um, 
to Syria. And uh, so we asked him uh, to uh, put a team together uh, and adding some some Syrians, uh, some of them who were actually involved in uh, pro-regime militias uh, and had very good good contacts with um, uh, their sponsors, the Revolutionary Guards, the Russians, um, uh, the Syrian regime, and so on. So we 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 did a kind of remote uh, interviewing uh, methodology and. Um, uh, so they started talking with Hezbollah people in, um, active in, um, in in Syria who were advising and training um, uh, fighters of pro-regime militias uh, in Syria. Uh, we started talking with the Revolutionary Guards officers, and um, and they were surprisingly. This is about like two two years ago that we started this, or two and a half years ago. They were surprisingly frank and forthcoming and talking about their experiences um and so we got a we think a wealth of of information from that and, and insights uh primarily from from their perspective um right. Fantastic. so we we then published uh, an article on this on the national defense force along these lines and then we we moved on to the foreign sponsorship of um, many if not most uh, pro uh, government militias in um, in Syria, and um, uh, and we started to think about the ways in which the Syrian war has been pitched or framed as a as a proxy war. And we started wondering and questioning, you know, what does that actually mean? What is a proxy war exactly? And um, so I started reading around on on proxy war literature. Uh, there is a small literature on on proxy warfare. Um, and I, I figured out that there were many, yeah, many things that uh, that we we recognised and 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 we we thought was applicable to the the Syrian case. Yes, there's heavy foreign intervention in in the conflict. Um, uh, external actors have uh, or even set up uh, military groups to to well to 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 outsource um, uh, warfare basically to do the fighting on behalf of the Russians of the Iranians and so on um, so there were many ways of yeah the proxy war echoing in the Syrian um, the Syrian context but there were we, we found many differences uh, as well and, and, and many things that didn't quite fit into the ways in which proxy warfare has predominantly predominantly been 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 studied in in the literature um, so first and foremost and perhaps most self-evidently but um, most of the proxy war literature looks at how external actors uh, support and use uh, rebel forces, insurgents. And here we had a clear example where there was a kind of massive operation whereby foreign actors, external actors supported uh, pro, pro-government militias, pro-regime pro, uh, yeah, pro militias, using them in counter-insurgency operations. Now, that's, that's not a uni- uh, unique, but um, has been very little studied um, uh, given the emphasis on, on, on insurgencies. So that, that was one thing. And then secondly, there was um, very much an emphasis in the literature on uh, sponsors of proxies um, being state state actors. Mm. 
and, and we, we, we found many cases wherein um, uh, the sponsors were actually themselves, uh, uh, well, non-state actors, uh, and even themselves, arguably, at times, uh, proxies themselves. So think, for example, of Hezbollah, but also um, uh, yeah, many, many Iraqi militias, which, which established their kind, of, um, their kind of branches or their own proxy uh, reincarnations in, in, in Syria to, uh, to take part in counterinsurgency operations. Um, and then, perhaps most importantly, um, uh, a lot of the proxy war literature talks about principal agent uh, dilemmas and relations, whereby the relationship between a sponsor and a proxy is seen as a kind of dyadic, hierarchical relationship uh, involving just one sponsor and 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 one proxy, uh, and all the you know the risks and dilemmas that that, that generates for um, for the sponsor, um, we we found that the, the story to be much more complicated, uh, whereby uh, proxies could have many different sponsors at the time. Uh, they could have some sponsorship from the from the Russians, from Hezbollah, from the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, from Hezbollah. Um, so, what we got was a much more complicated um, picture, uh, whereby um, the outcome of, of these yeah, relations was, was much less predictable than the principal agent kind of approach uh, suggested. Uh, proxies were much more able to negotiate uh, and have some leeway uh, in um in, in this relationship, because they could all call, they could always shift to some extent from one sponsor to the to the other. Um, the uh, incumbent regime, the Syrian regime, also was being portrayed as as largely being overrun by you know all this kind of foreign meddling and foreign sponsors uh, running the show in in Syria. You know, many times it has been argued. That the Syrian regime was um, were basically becoming becoming totally irrelevant, but because the landscape was, has been so complex and the power relations so diffuse, um, even the Syrian regime managed to kind of play out um, sponsors against one another, establish their own relationships with with um, with armed groups, um, uh, sometimes at the expense of the of the sponsors, and 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 the regime also managed to kind of um, build some some leeway uh, and, and and retain some leeway in this um, in this yeah complex process um, involving counterinsurgency. Um, so we, we we used all of that um, to um, to uh, yeah to critique the proxy war literature, saying well there are many ways in which your observations um, apply in the Syrian case, which we think is an important case. Uh, but um, there are many ways in, in which it um, yeah the Syrian case differs as well, and, and seems to suggest that proxy war warfare has has moved on, has become more complicated, more complex um, than it has been portrayed in the literature. Hmm. So, so what is it like then to do research on the the Syrian context right now, and and how is it different from before? Well, it is it is very different. Before 2011, of course, it was very easy to go to Syria, talk to people, get a sense of the atmosphere, um, 
and uh, well, you know, now that is is much more much more difficult. So we, we we've we've come up with all sorts of ways to circumvent that problem. Um, one way is um, is to work with informers inside Syria, as we did for the um, pro regime militias project. Uh, another way is, um, well, you know, Syria has come to us. A lot yeah. of refugees, of course, have uh, have come have come to Europe, and uh, so we so we can can talk to them there. Um, so there there are ways around it, but there there are also some 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 things that changed after 2011, and particularly when the conflict progressed and got worse and worse, and and the you know the the, the humanitarian dimension, the impact has has been so overwhelming, so devastating, that at times I I, I feel I feel increasingly awkward when um, talking to activists, to Syrian refugees. Some of them I, I I had met already before 2011 in inside Syria. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, of course, I have a an analytical and a research driven. Agenda and, and for them, it's 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 basically you know their 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 lives have been completely uprooted. Uh, they are they are devastated, and you know the, the 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 magnitude of the Syrian drama has 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 become so so bad um, that yeah at times I I really feel like is it really appropriate to ask these kind of you know academically driven yeah. Questions: um, Is it still relevant? How sure. how how can how, how can my work uh, contribute to those suffering in this in this conflict? And and uh, yeah, I, I I struggle to find positive answers to that question. Yeah, of course, and I think it's it's something that anyone working on Syria or indeed conflict zones across across the world more broadly, I guess, struggles with how to reconcile that that analytical dimension to what it is that we're doing and the the fact that that these people's lives have been devastated as you say how, how do you square that that very difficult circle then um well i, I don't think i managed to square it <laughs> right <laughs> to yeah. start with but um uh i i i i during interviews um I, I for just a very on the very practical note, I, I just stop taking notes. I, I I I increasingly felt that my Syrian interlocutors simply wanted to tell their story. They didn't want to be, uh, yeah, they, they didn't want me to 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 just sit there in a in my professional capacity, but really to listen. Uh, otherwise, in a more Personal capacity, um, you know, I've I've tried here at home in Europe to um, to help out uh, when it comes to Syrian refugees and all the problems that they they face in uh, when when arriving in in Europe. Um, uh, and yeah, so I didn't square the circle uh, by any by any standard, but um, I'm yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm trying to do my best. Yeah, of course, and I'm sure you're you're doing a great deal and. Perhaps we all have to find our own ways of of trying to square that circle, but in our own way, in a way that 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 makes us feel as comfortable as we can when we're doing this type of this type of work. Yeah, indeed, and and uh, in a way, 
at times I, I do receive some appreciation. For example, my earlier work on the onset of the you know the protests and the uprising, the revolution in Syria. Um, uh, at times, I, I get responses from from Syrians who who want to translate my work into Arabic because they feel like it's it's a document registering at least what they have been going through sure. as a as a kind of a, a testimony. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess that's that's such a positive thing to to know that that your work resonates amongst amongst the people who you're writing about. I guess. Yeah, it's the it's the most rewarding uh, sure. well review you can get. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's it's really fascinating hearing you reflect on that. And there, there's so many points to to pick up on, but and 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 for so much more further discussion. But Reinhard, we've taken up a great deal of your time. So all that remains to be said is is thank you so much for joining us, and I hope that we can pick up on some of these points. Uh, next time, hopefully after your book is out, so we can talk more in detail about that as well. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to listening. Until next time.